Christian family therapist John Trent shared two letters given to him by a third grade teacher. And the letters were part of an assignment that her students had completed. This is the first letter from one of the third, uh, third grade students, a girl. She said, Dear Dad, I love it when you take me on dates. I like it when you play baseball with me, miniature golf with me, and watch movies with me. I really appreciate it. I like it when you tell jokes to me. I like it when you hug me and kiss me, Daddy. I love you. The teacher said just four seats away from the first letter writer sat another little girl. Here's what her letter said. Dear Daddy, I love you so much. When are you going to come see me again? I miss you very much. I love it when you take me to the pool. When am I going to get to spend the night at your house? Have you ever seen my house before? I want to see what your house looks like. Do you? When am I going to get to see you again? I love you, Daddy. One letter is from a child whose father knows what it means to be there. The second is from a child whose father, for whatever reason, has chosen not to be there or is not able to be there. You know, presence is important. We know that, don't we? From those we love and those who love us, their presence is what we desire and need the most. Something that in many ways has been interrupted over the last year. Longtime friendships, family members who are not in our immediate household, co-workers and so on, we miss them. We long to reconnect and rebuild. And it's great as people start returning here to worship and we're seeing people in other places. It's encouraging because Zoom is not presence after all. Now we may, in a hard season especially, also wonder at the presence of God. Is God here? Can I trust to that? What is God up to? Can God help us to make sense of what we're living through? Really, behind all the questions, we just long to know that God is with us, that God is present. In this season after Easter, which we call Eastertide, we see numerous examples of Jesus' disciples and followers coming to terms with the reality of his death, but also his resurrection and what that means for them. They do this primarily not through discussion or debate, but through the actual presence of the risen Christ. It's his presence that makes so many of the questions seem unimportant. It's his presence that puts doubt to rest. It's his presence that begins the healing that they need. It's his presence that gives them the power and the will to be his witnesses in the world, to share his life and his love. And it's the presence of the risen Christ that we need as well for the very same reasons. I put a little blurb in the uh, update this week about the Paschal candle. This is the candle here. It's kindled with new fire at the Easter vigil, or in our case, the sunrise service. And it will burn uh, whenever we gather to worship throughout the Easter season, up to Pentecost, or until just after the gospel is read on Ascension Day. It signifies Jesus' presence with his disciples after the resurrection, before his ascension, and before his exaltation to the Father's right hand. It reminds us that Jesus did not just go away. He didn't just disappear, but he was faithful to his own. He brought resurrection hope to them through his presence. He invited them to know the reality and the joy of his life. He taught them from the scriptures so that they would understand what they had experienced. And he prepared them to receive the Holy Spirit. 
And then he sends them into the world, but mostly he was present. He was present with them. So the risen Jesus was physically present to his disciples, right? I mean, that's the important part of touching him and seeing him eat that fish. He's really here. It's not a ghost or a phantom. And the risen Jesus is truly present with us through the Holy Spirit, through the means of grace. And the risen Jesus is present to the world through his church, through his hands and feet. This is why it's so important that we know and affirm that he's here that he's present with us, that he's near, that he comes with his love and healing and reconciling life. And that what we have to share with others is not just the truth of salvation and the things we teach, the creeds and so on, which are very important, but we actually have the real presence of the risen Lord himself to share. This is especially important to know when things seem at their darkest and most difficult. When we wonder if things can ever be normal again, when we grieve the violence and the injustice of the world and the hardness of our own hearts, when we're afraid, when there's conflict, we can know the Lord's sustaining and healing presence. I may have shared this uh, little story before, but it, it's, it's worth hearing again. It was, it was 1956, and Dr. Martin Luther King was leading efforts in the bus boycott in Montgomery, Alabama. He had come home after a very long day. It was late at night. Everyone in the house was asleep, and he got a phone call. And that phone call was a threatening phone call, threatening his life. He was receiving 30 to 40 of these calls a day to his house, threatening himself but also his family. And he knew he wouldn't be able to sleep, so he just made a pot of coffee, and he sat in the kitchen, not knowing how he could go on. And in that moment, he had an experience of the presence of Christ saying to him, I am with you. I will never leave you. I will never leave you alone. That knowledge and, and experience of Christ's presence is what gave him the strength to continue. In today's lectionary, we are given glimpses into how we can know and grow in our awareness of Christ's presence even as the disciples were astonished and amazed when Jesus stood in their midst. So that's what, I wanted, that's what I want to look at today. Just what are some things that we do or can be doing in order to increase our awareness, to grow in our knowledge of, of the Lord's presence with us? The first thing we see the disciples doing is sharing what they know and celebrating that. I mean, in Luke 24, right before this uh, selection of verses, Two disciples are walking together. You know the story, I'm sure, well, walking to Emmaus. And a third person appears with them to walk with them. And they don't recognize that it's actually Jesus until they stop for a meal and Jesus breaks the bread. And then they see him. Their eyes are opened in that moment to who it is. And they run back to Jerusalem and they tell the others, He's risen! <laughs> and they begin to relate their experiences on the road, and how he was recognized to them. And the scripture says, verse 36 says, Now while they were telling these things, Jesus himself suddenly stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be to you. While they were telling. You know, when we share our experiences of the Lord's faithfulness, when we gather to worship, when we rehearse the great things God has done through Jesus Christ, when we pray, when we encounter the sacraments, he is present. And we grow in our awareness of that. 
telling our stories in the midst of worship. Testimony, that's powerful to this end. You may know that occasionally in Core at Nine, we, we have just a season of stories, people sharing their stories, their personal journey of faith. We're going to be doing that again, I think, this fall. That's not just sort of, oh, let's get to know you a little bit. It's to celebrate the faithfulness of God. And when we hear someone share that, it increases our faith. And especially if we're going through a similar trial, I can say, no, the Lord is with me. <laughs> I have a renewed sense of that, an encouragement around that, confidence in that. What does Paul say? Don't stop worshiping together. I'm thankful for the technology that it's allowed us to continue to gather, at least in some form. We pray, we sing, we hear the Word of God, we say the creed, we, we encourage one another even when we don't feel like it. Because that's what we do. And it increasingly opens us to knowing God is present. You know, the, you know some of the Anglican Church of Kenya's liturgy because at the very end of our service, we have the end of their service. All our problems we send to the cross of Christ. But do you know how the liturgy actually begins? The liturgy begins this way. Is the Father with us? And the congregation declares, He is. Is Christ among us? He is. Is the Spirit here? He is. This is our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We are His people. We are redeemed. So we celebrate and we share with each other the truth of the Lord's risen presence, and we see the disciples doing this. Another way that we can be encouraged in the presence of the Lord with us is by adjusting our lives <laughs> in the areas of volume and speed. In the areas of volume and speed. When we're rushing around, trying to accomplish all of our many goals, constantly in a state of noisy activity, we can miss the still, small voice of God's presence. We'll start to wonder where God went and why he doesn't seem interested in our great plans and accomplishments. When Jesus appears to disciples here in Luke, they're doubtful. They're doubting. They're fearful. But they're also quiet. At least we don't have any report. Luke gives us no report of anything they said. It's true in the Gospel of John as well. And even as their joy and amazement are increasing, as they start to realize something that is just too good to be true, that Jesus is really here, they're silent. They're silent in the face of so great a revelation. In today's psalm, there's something that you don't have printed. And it's right after verse 2 and right after verse 4, and it's that little Hebrew word, selah. Selah. And honestly, nobody knows what it means. I mean, scholars have their ideas, right? Of course. It's either an instruction to the reader or it's an instruction to the mu musicians, but what we think it means is stop and listen. Pause and exalt the Lord. Don't move on yet. Pay attention. Be silent. Which is why I took a little break after two and after four. In his book, The Faith That Endures, Ronald Boyd McMillan tells the story of a number of conversations that he had with Wang Ming Dao, who was one of China's most influential pastors of the last century. Now, the first time he met this famous and also persecuted Chinese pastor, they had the following interchange. Ming Dao asked him, he says, Young man, how do you walk with God? 
And uh, the author says, I listed off the set of disciplines that I do. You know, Bible study, prayer, all these great things. And he mis- mischievously retorted to me, he said, wrong answer. To walk with God, you must go at walking pace. He wrote this, he said, the words of Wang Ming Dao touched me to the core. How can I talk about the Christian life as walking with God when I so often live it at a sprint? Jesus is inviting me to walk with him. Too often I find myself running for him. There's a difference. This is what he summarizes from what he learned from this uh, pastor who spent 20 years in prison. He said, one of the keys to the faith of the suffering church is that God does things slowly. He works with the heart. We are too quick. We have so much to do, so much, in fact, we never commune with God as he intended. For Wang Ming Dao, persecution, that cell in which he found himself, was the place where he returned to walking pace, slowing down, stilling himself enough to commune with God. So to grow in our awareness of God's presence will require some silence and the right pace of spiritual discipline. There's another thing, too. Not just the pace, but the way in which we live that affects our ability to know the Lord's presence and to hear and to see. Are we growing in Christ-likeness? As we look to Jesus, are we becoming more like Him, or are we refusing to grow in certain areas? Attitudes and actions, actions that take us away from the joy of the risen Christ. Going our own way, remaining in sinful patterns of thought and action without desire to grow. Clinging to attitudes that are self-centered. You know, these will block our ability to sense the presence of the Lord. In his letter, John says that no one who lives in Jesus, who has seen him, keeps on sinning. I don't think he means perfection, but I think he means direction. What is your desire of your heart? Gregory of Nyssa said, sin is the failure to grow. Are we growing or are we refusing to grow? Now, hear me, I'm not saying that if we're having trouble discerning the Lord's presence, it's because of sin. There are many things that block our awareness, most of which we have little control over. But it's good to give attention to this, to say, am I living the life that Christ has called me to? Am I growing? Am I becoming more like him? If so, then we'll have a growing sense of his presence with us. Also, we come to know the presence of God more fully as we witness to Him in the world. What is a witness? Well, a witness is someone who shares what they've seen, what they've experienced, and they're committed to it with their lives. That's why the New Testament word for witness has given us our word martyr. We can witness with words, certainly, the truth of the gospel, the story of God's salvation. This is what Jesus does. In Luke 24, He opens their minds so they can understand the scriptures about him. He tells them, you are witnesses of these things. Peter does something similar in Acts. He opens the scriptures. He tells his listeners what they had obviously missed, that Jesus is, in fact, God's Messiah. You killed him, but God raised him from the dead, he said, and we are witnesses of this. But we can also witness through presence, by being present to others, with the healing, reconciling, and life-giving presence of Christ. I mean, Jesus comes and he stands in their midst, doesn't he? And he calls his church, 
as a witness to stand in the midst of the world. This has been a terribly violent week, in a violent year, in an era of violence. So much so, I, I fear we don't even, we're numb to it. There's so much healing that's needed, so much work to be done, so many broken, despairing, and even angry hearts. It's overwhelming. But the church can do one thing that no one else can do, and that is we can be present with Christ's resurrection reality. I hope we never forget that. We can show up. We can support. We can love, even without words. The church goes to the places of brokenness. It goes to the places of violence. It goes to the places of injustice. And it says, Jesus is here. Jesus is here because we're here in his name. What does Jesus say to his disciples here? He says, I'm real. I'm really here. Look at my hands and feet. Jesus says to the world, I'm real. I'm really here. Look at my hands and feet. My brothers and sisters, we are that presence of Christ to the broken world, which is why it matters so much what the church does and says, how we live our life together, how we treat one another, how we model godliness and care. When the church says, don't get a vaccine, it matters. When we tolerate abusive leaders in the church and Christian organizations, it matters. And when we, through silence, or even words and action endorse evil in the world, it matters. The church is not perfect. I mean, there's a lot of human there, right? That's, 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 that's true. We're broken people, even though we come and gather in his name. Annie Dillard said that nothing could more surely convince her of God's unending mercy than the continued existence of the, on earth of the church. <laughs> I mean, you know, God pours out his mercy on us. But we cannot offer what we do not have. Or, or at least do not long for, we can grow in affirming and living into the presence of Christ so that we'll be able to stand in the brokenness of the world as his hands and his feet. I want to end by telling a story of someone. This was the 17th century in France. And there was a man by the name of Nicholas Herman. He was a soldier. And he fought in wars, several different wars. He'd been captured once by the Germans, and he was so difficult they let him go. I mean, he just had, he was strong, that kind of, you know. But it got to a place in his life where he, he wanted to, to kind of move back into the faith that he had as a child. And so he associated himself with a monastery in Paris. Now, he was not an educated person. He'd been a soldier. They made him a cook. And people described that you know, his appearance was really kind of, he was burly, and he'd knock things over, and he just was awkward and clumsy. But he had a desire to know God and to know the presence of God in his life. And through this very simple life of cooking, and then later when his health got so bad, he became the, the person that repaired sandals in the monastery. In the monastery, he took the name Lawrence. Lawrence of the Resurrection. We know him today as Brother Lawrence. 
And he left something for us that he didn't even write. It was written by someone else who wrote down the things that he had said. And it's called Practicing the Presence of God. People from all over came to see Brother Lawrence. People who are important, as well as just regular people, to learn from him how to go deeper in the knowledge of the presence of God. He wrote this. He said, the most holy practice, the nearest to daily life, the most essential for the spiritual life, is the practice of the presence of God. That is, to find joy in His divine company, to make it a habit of life, speaking humbly, conversing lovingly with Him at all times, in every moment, without rule or restriction, and above all, at times of temptation, distress, dryness, and revulsion, and even of faithlessness and sin. Jesus himself stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Amen.